with you. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to the Gospel of John chapter 6. John chapter 6. As we move into this new section in John's Gospel. John chapter 6 will focus this morning on the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which is contained in verses 1 through 14. So that will be the focus of our Uh, Our attention this morning, John 6, verses 1 through 14, and I'll give us a moment to turn there so that we can read the Word of God together. John chapter 6, let's begin at verse 1. This is the Word of God. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed Him because they saw His signs, which He performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat with His disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up His eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward Him, He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that even one of them may, or that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, He said to His disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Amen. Let's unite our hearts and pray together as we come to the preaching of the Word. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God incarnate. And just as we've read of Your Son breaking this bread for these people and feeding these crowds, we pray that You would open up to us the bread of life. That You would feed us. That we would be nourished by the Word of God as we learn of Christ and as we are again given more of the glories of Christ for His people. Father, we pray that You would be our help, that You would draw near to us. We pray that we would marvel at the person of Your Son, that You have given us Your best, 
You've given us the Lord of glory to be our Redeemer and our Savior. One who is the bread from heaven. The bread that came down from heaven for the life of the world. That just as these crowds ate until they were satisfied, You have taught us and shown us that Your Son is more than sufficient for all of our spiritual needs. That Your entire church draws from Him and yet He never depletes. Father, teach us to depend on Christ more, we pray. We pray that we would, as this miracle shows us, that we would find in Him our all in all. Lord, forgive us for our unbelief like Philip here and how often we we doubt Your power towards Your people. We doubt the Lord Jesus' care for us. When we think that all earthly means are exhausted, we think that that is the end of the matter. And we fail to remember His power towards those who believe. Father, help us to be people full of faith that we would trust Him for all things. Father, teach us, we pray. We pray for any who are here who don't know Christ, who are strangers to the Gospel, who are still in their sins. We pray that today You would awaken their hearts and their minds. That they would see their need of rescue and deliverance through the blood of Christ. We pray that they would see their own sinfulness before a holy God and their need for ransom. Their need to be delivered from the power and the penalty of sin through the cross of Christ and His resurrection for us. Father, glorify Yourself, we pray. We ask that You would instruct us from Your Word. Give us not only minds that are instructed, but also hearts and wills that are changed to live in light of Your Word. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's begin with our exposition this morning. That's where we'll start as we usually do, and then we'll turn to our doctrine and application after we've considered the text. But if it's at this point, I especially encourage you, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, to have it open to John chapter 6 so that we can see together what God is teaching us and what He is uh, giving to His people here in the first 14 verses. And so, let's begin here with our exposition in verse 1. This chapter is a transition uh, from chapter 5. Jesus is being put on trial for His uh, healing a man on the Sabbath and His subsequent claims to be equal with His Father. This now is a transition chapter. And it says that after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So John is giving us the setting here. When he says after these things, it doesn't mean immediately after these things. Uh, Remember, John's Gospel, just like all the Gospels, is selective. Uh, The other Gospels, especially Luke chapter 9, locates the feeding of the 5,000 directly on the heels of the disciples returning to the Lord after their first evangelistic mission. And upon their return to the Lord Jesus, they tell the Lord, all that they had seen and all that they had done. And Jesus, in light of their heavy workload, invites them to come and withdraw with Him to a desolate place near Bethsaida. And so, they get into a boat 
and they cross the sea to this region on the north, what would be the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, or as John also calls it here, the Sea of Tiberias. And then verse 2, then a great multitude followed him. And Mark 6 tells us that while Jesus and the disciples took the boat across the sea, these multi- this multitude follows him by foot around the shore of the sea. A great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And so we see here again that our Lord rarely gets a private moment. No matter where he goes, uh, it seems that there are crowds following him, flocking to him, because they have seen his signs. And remember, this is a theme that's already been introduced in the Gospel of John. It will continue to be developed. We saw in chapter 2 those in Jerusalem who quote-unquote believed in the Lord because they saw the signs which He did. And yet John tells us Jesus did not entrust Himself to them because their faith was fraudulent. It was not based and rooted in His person, but simply in the benefit of His signs. We then saw chapter 4, towards the end of chapter 4, after the woman at the well, Even in his own home country, Galilee, John says, rather um, somewhat interestingly, that the people of Galilee flocked to him because they had seen the signs which he had done, and yet Jesus says that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. They were also those who sought him for his signs, yet with impure motives. And so also we'll see the same proof true with this crowd as we move on in chapter 6. A crowd who desires His signs, but has no place in their hearts for His Word. And then verses 3 and 4. Jesus went up on a mountain, and there He sat with His disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Now it's interesting that John mentions this time marker at this point in the narrative rather than at the beginning with the rest of the when he gives the rest of the setting. And there are a couple well there's a few I'll give you a couple <coughs> excuse me potential explanations for why John includes this detail at this point. Number 1, one possibility, it was customary amongst the Jews to observe Passover 30 days before it actually came to pass. They would would prepare themselves for the approach of Passover. And it was a time in which devout Jews would prepare themselves and they would talk often of the significance of Passover. And so perhaps John's point here is that these crowds are particularly expectant of the coming holiday and they are particularly wanting to hear from the Lord an exposition an explanation of the significance of Passover. A second option that John might mention this here is he might mention this detail here to explain the reason for this great multitude and their eagerness to come and to hear from Jesus. It's not just every day that you make the trek around an entire sea by foot in order to hear someone. Um, And it's possible John includes this detail to explain why there is such eagerness. Because potentially, they already know that Jesus is a devout Jew. They know that He will soon be departing their region to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast with His disciples. 
And therefore, they know that Jesus is going to be absent from us. And therefore, we ought to make the most of this opportunity and attend to His teaching while we have Him. And if that's the case, brothers and sisters, that should instruct us as God's people that the prospect of losing our current opportunities for spiritual benefit should stir us up to make all the more use of our present circumstances before they are taken away from us. Now, the other Gospels, particularly Luke, but also Mark and and Matthew, they fill us in on some things that happen between John's verse 4 and verse 5 here. Again, John is selective. He's just hitting the high points that we need to know, not necessarily everything that took place on this, this day. But Luke's Gospel cues us in that between verses 4 and 5, Jesus spends the entire day instructing these crowds about the kingdom of God and healing those who were sick all the way until the day began to wear away and it was evening. Well, that's where John picks up. He skips the teaching and the healing part. He just brings us to the the evening part in verse 5. He tells us, "Then, Then Jesus lifted up His eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward Him, He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread so that these may eat? Now, there are several things that we ought to note here. Several things that we are instructed regarding the Lord Jesus' character and His ministry. Number one, remember, this crowd, we're in the backwoods of Galilee here. Okay, This crowd is not the upper class. It's not the spiritual elite, so to speak, like at Jerusalem. It's not filled with influential, rich people, and yet the Lord Jesus gives His attention to them just as much as He does, quote-unquote, important people in Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus shows us here that His care for souls was an impartial care. And He teaches us, as our example, that we also ought to condescend to those of low estate just as much as we would to those, uh, as much as we would to others. But also, not only are we shown his, his impartiality, we also see here the selflessness of Christ. Think about it. After a long day spent teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing those who were sick, one might think that naturally he is the one who deserves to reap physical things from them. Right? If anything, they owe him a meal. Like Paul talks about, if I've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much for me to reap physical things? But no, he insists that they eat with him, and not only that they eat with him, but that he and the disciples should be the ones to provide the meal. That's significant. We know that the Lord Jesus was poor by all earthly standards. And to the surprise of his disciples, as we'll see with Philip here, he doesn't ask Philip, Philip, where shall we get money to buy bread? But rather, he just jumps straight to the, the question, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these may eat? And naturally, he poses the question to Philip. That's one of the unique things about John's Gospel. The other Gospels kind of poses it generically to, to all the disciples. John here lets us, clues us in that he poses it specifically to Philip. 
And that's a natural question to be posed to Philip because if you remember from chapter 1, Philip is from Bethsaida. This is his home country. And naturally, Philip would be the one who knows the lay of the land. He knows where they could get bread. And he probably knows some of the company that's present here. uh, Present to hear the Lord Jesus. (coughs) And then, excuse me, verse 6 cues us into a very important aspect of this narrative. And this is, again, one of those things that only John gives us this window. Look at verse 6. He's just asked Philip, where are we to get bread to feed all these? And verse 6, John comments, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. In other words, this miracle is not just a miracle for the crowds. It is that but it's simultaneously a test for His disciples. Right? Philip has been from the start of an eyewitness to the Lord's miracles. In particular, he was there chapter 2. He saw the water turn to wine. This is a test for Philip. Will Philip judge the circumstance by carnal sense? Or will he remember what he has already seen of the Lord and look to the Lord to do it again? John says he himself knew what he would do. That's always true of the Lord when he tests his people. All of the the Lord's tests for his people, as puzzling as they may be to us, and as seemingly impossible as they may seem to us, they all come to us from the perfect knowledge of what Jesus already knows he intends to do. He's not at a loss here. He's not genuinely asking Philip out of ignorance. He inquires of his people for our benefit so that our hearts might be exposed and our faith might be strengthened. But sadly, as is often the case for our encouragement, Philip doesn't pass the test. uh, Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Now, if Jesus were any ordinary person, that would be a legitimate statement. Right? Ordinary people have to live by ordinary means. We all know that very well. To get bread, you need money. Not only do you need money, you need that amount of bread so that you can buy it. And Philip here highlights the impossibility of that, both by highlighting how much it would cost, 200 denarii, that's about two-thirds of a year's wage, and then he highlights not only that, but even if we were to spend all that money, that would only be enough for each of them only to get a little. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's a rebuke to us, right? We, we, and I'll mention this in our application. It's so easy for us to gloat at the disciples, to gloat over Philip. This is a rebuke not only to Philip, it's a rebuke to all of God's people for how often we also likewise trust the Lord only in so far as we can see Him. How often when we see ordinary means exhausted, seems that we've explored all human answers, and how often do we, are we just immediately and quick to think, how can the Lord resolve this? And there's no bread around. There's no money. 
it seems that the Lord's request here is just impossible. So that's Philip. Andrew now, a different disciple, he has a go. Does a bit better, but still weak in faith. Verse 8. One of, the, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here, a little boy, who has five barley loaves and two fish, two small fish. Okay. Now, compared to Philip, that's a, that's a good start. right? At, at least Andrew is willing to make an attempt here. Um, at least he's bringing out all that he can think of to try to meet the Lord's request. Uh, knowing, no doubt, that even if we go this route, it probably no doubt means that the twelve, we're going to go hungry, but at least five loaves and two fishes, something. I mean, Philip just had the attitude that this is hopeless. There's just no point in even trying. At least Andrew's making an attempt here. Um, it was, this was a meager meal that Andrew brings to the Lord's attention. Not just in quantity, it's meager in quantity, no doubt, but also in quality. Uh, five barley loaves. Ba- barley loaves, that, that was the poor man's grain. right? It's not wheat. And two small fish. Right? When you think of two fish here, don't, don't think you know, massive <laughs> uh, sea creatures, gargantuan fish that come you know, straight out of the deep sea that's going to feed 100 people. These are probably small fish that would have been pickled that you probably would have spread on bread. It's like a sardine, right? Small fish. Um, and then, so he, he suggests this, but then we see his lingering unbelief similar to Philip. He says, but what are these among so many? Right? It's as though in Andrew's mind to present this sort of a meal to this crowd is simply to mock their appetite. What are they both forgetting? They're both forgetting the power of Christ of which they have been peculiarly acquainted with. That's a lesson for us. Genuine Christians don't outright deny the power of Christ the way the religious leaders did in chapter 5, but genuine Christians are apt to forget the power of Christ. I mean, you think back not only on their own experience, but the Old Testament. How did God feed Israel? Manna from heaven. Meat. Water came from a rock in the wilderness. These disciples have all of that in their mind. They've seen the Lord firsthand turn water to wine. And yet, when it comes to this circumstance where it seems all earthly means are exhausted, they think that certainly the Lord's hand and the Lord's arm must be shortened here. And this is what sets the stage for the coming discourse. We'll look, I'll mention it a bit in our application, but we'll open it up as we make our way through the chapter. The whole point of this test that Jesus presents to them about where shall we get bread is because Jesus is going to show them how He provides bread, not just physically, but it's setting the stage for the discourse in which he declares to his disciples and to these crowds that he himself is the bread that comes down from heaven. And that's what he's about to demonstrate to them in a very physical, tangible way. So verse 10 begins the miracle itself. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, then Jesus said, make the people sit down 
And then John gives us this detail. There was much grass in the place. Notice something. Notice Jesus makes the disciples seat the crowds first before He performs the miracle. It's not like Jesus just produces a mountain of bread and fish and then says, okay, is that sufficient for you disciples to believe Me? Now seat them for us to eat. But rather, He says, seat them even though you have nothing at present to give them and trust Me for that. And so the men sat down in number about 5,000. That's, that's besides women and children, by the way. The other Gospels tell us. In verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to the disciples and the disciples then to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. That, that's a summary of this miracle right there. He begins by giving thanks. That's significant. Children, do you ever wonder why do we give thanks to God every time we eat? One of the reasons is because the Lord Jesus Himself models it for us. We ought to give God thanks even when our meal is not spectacular. Okay, children, I'm, I have kids. <laughs> Even when it's not a feast, I mean, this is barley bread, two small fish, and yet the Lord Jesus thanks His Father for it. Why? Because it comes down from the hand of the Father. And therefore, we owe God thanks for it. That's a lesson. Even, even Jesus thanks His Father for these loaves and fish, and it teaches us that everything, children and adults, everything we have, even when we get it from other people, the only reason we have it is because God first gave it to them so that they can give it to us. And therefore, we owe God thanks. So Jesus begins, He thanks His Father for these loaves of bread and fish. And then notice, Jesus doesn't distribute them directly to the people, but how does He do it? He distributes them to the people through His disciples. Why might that be? Maybe that is so that the disciples would see firsthand the miracle. That they might see these five loaves and two fish, and as these five loaves and two fish are passed from hand to hand to hand to hand, and they see with their own eyes, it never depletes. And whenever someone takes some, there it is replenished again for the next person. And notice the satisfaction of this meal that the crowd received. Verse 12. John is not, at least in this miracle, he just flies over some, some things that you'd like more detail. He just flies over them with just very simple statements. Verse 12. So when they were filled, so when 5,000 men plus women and children were filled, not when they had each had a little, not when they had but taken a bite or snack, after a long day of hiking and trekking and are no doubt hungry, after they were satisfied to the full, Jesus said to His disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. That's, that's instructive as well. Even though Christ could produce bread and fish at will, He tells them to gather up what is left. That's significant. There are practical instructions here for us. 
One thing, that models for us not to waste even that which God gives in abundance. It can be very tempting when God blesses us beyond what we need that we just get careless and we think that we can be wasteful and not so careful. Jesus shows us that even that which God gives in abundance we should care for. Because all of God's gifts are gifts from God and therefore are to be received with thankfulness and used for good purpose. But there's more to it than that. Not only is there instruction here, I think Jesus telling the disciples to gather up the fragments is because these fragments themselves are witness of the truth of the miracle. Not only was this crowd filled, but to prove it, there's some left over. And this is Christ's reward showing them that they would not lack for trusting Him. Look at verse 13. Therefore they gathered them up and they filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Notice how many baskets? Twelve. How many disciples? Twelve, right? One basket left over for each disciple. They were worried. Where are we going to get enough food? How is it possible for us to feed these crowds? And yet, so gracious is Christ that not only is the crowd satisfied, but even in the wake of the disciples' unbelief, they get their portion. And finally, verse 14, the conclusion. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, those are words that are going to be tested and proved to be false. We've seen this. We saw it in chapter 4 where it was actually a a genuine conversion. The woman at the well, the people of Samaria, they proclaim this is the prophet, this is the Christ, and it proves genuine. We're going to see as this chapter moves on that right now when their bellies are full, they confess this is a prophet. What an amazing man. But once he begins addressing their hearts, they suddenly have a different opinion. And they turn from Him and depart from Him. And we'll pick that up next week, Lord willing. Let's transition to our doctrine and application. That's our exposition. That's something of the explanation of what happened. Some of the lessons and the significance of what happened. Let's turn now to our doctrine and application. I've combined these again. I have two things for us. And I could have done more if I had space for it. We just don't have time. Two things this morning that I want us to open up under doctrine and application. Two ways that we are instructed in our mind how we think about the Lord, how we think about the Lord's dealing with His disciples, and also application from those things of how we ought to respond. Okay? And I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, we are instructed here how the Lord Jesus tests the faith of His disciples. Okay? We are instructed here how the Lord Jesus, in, uh, excuse me, how the Lord Jesus tests the faith of His disciples. We have here in John 6 a window, a window that we are not always explicitly given into how the Lord often deals with His disciples. And the Gospels are, are, are a brilliant gift to us for this reason. For many reasons, but for this one in particular. 
The Gospels give us insight into how the Lord dealt with His disciples while He was on earth so that we can understand more readily how He still deals with His people from heaven. And how even though He is not with us physically, present with us, like Philip, the Lord tests us. And He proves us and he even sometimes exposes us like He does Philip here. Think about it. He puts to Philip a question. Or we could put it another way. He puts Philip in a certain situation. Philip, where are we to buy food so that these may eat? And perhaps that seems to us like an easy question. So easy for us to read the Gospels with our, our noses up, looking down them at the disciples. Right? And you, you read that and you just think, I mean, because you've just read it, you know, three chapters before. Philip, come on. The wedding at Cana. You've seen it. You've seen his healings. You saw John 5. Philip, it's so easy to, to think, Philip, this is a test for you. And so therefore, Philip, just respond in light of what you've already seen the Lord do. Right? That's easy for us to say. But what we must remember is that though Jesus knew what He would do, that doesn't mean that Philip knew what was going on. It's not like Jesus said to Philip, Philip, by the way, this is a test of your faith here. I would suggest you kind of brush up on everything you've seen before. How are we to get food here, Philip? Right? That's not how life usually comes at us. And so, he poses this question to Philip, and Philip is caught how? He's caught with his guard down. Philip basically says, beats me, Lord. How are we going to feed them? Right? But Christian, here's, here's the lesson, one of the lessons for us. Does the Lord not deal the same way with us from heaven? I mean, Philip's situation has unique things to it, but the principle is there. Right? He said this to test him. Christian, it could be written above every test, every trial, every unexpected turn in your life, it could be written, the Lord did this to test him. He did this to test her. Right? The Lord loves his people too much not to test us. Divine providence leads us doesn't just find us. It leads us into difficult, even seemingly impossible situations where it seems there is no earthly answer and it seems to us that all earthly explanations and, and means have been exhausted. Why? To test us. Paul said, he summarizes this principle in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Talking about his persecutions, his sufferings. And then he says this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but upon him who raises the dead. So Paul, why were you brought to the point where you felt you'd been given the sentence of death? To cause you not to rely on yourself, but upon him who raises the dead. Tests have a way of doing that, don't they? They have a way of doing that that when life is just going peachy and, and well, doesn't. 
tests show what's really in here. Whether we like it or not, sometimes that's humbling. I would say most of the time that's probably humbling. Sometimes it's encouraging where we realize, Lord, I didn't completely fail. And I did, a little, I, I did a bit better than last time. But probably most of the time it's a mixture of those. Where we are humbled in the aftermath of a test because of how we failed yet again and encouraged because the Lord is still at work and I'm growing. But Christian, there's, let's just open this up. Philip's test was very physical, very immediate. It was presented to him. He was put in a very difficult circumstance with a difficult question to answer. But we can expand the principle. There are a variety of ways that the Lord tests His people. It can be from external pressures from the outside, difficult, bewildering situations like the one Philip is put in, or it can be internal temptations and trials. Right? From without, that's probably the ones we, we more think about. There's no shortage of press, pressures the Christian faces. Right? Peter, the apostle, faced the, the fear of, of his own life, which caused him to deny the Lord. Paul faced danger on every side. Christians today face things like, Lord, I, I just don't see any other outcome besides losing my job or losing my family if I continue to remain a faithful Christian and stand upon Your Word. Or it can come in the form of things like hard news from the doctor. That's an external, difficult trial. But He also sends trials from within. Dark seasons which afflict the soul. And the Lord removes His countenance from us, as it were. And He leaves us for a season. And we are tempted to despair in the darkness. Tempted to think, Lord, I'm never going to get out of this darkness. You think of Psalm 130 in the psalmist that like the watchman waits for the morning, I will wait for you. How long did the psalmist wait? How many tears did he cry feeling like the Lord had departed from him? How many hours did he spend feeling suspended over the depths of the pit like my God has abandoned me? We're not told how many, how long. But we do know the Lord intended it to test him. Just like John tells us here, the Lord knew what He intended to do. That's always true in our trials. But the truth is, truth be told, if we're all honest, unless you're a super Christian and I just don't know about you yet, truth be told, we respond far more often like Philip than we would like to admit. We forget this bird's eye view that John's giving us here of the Lord's intention in our tests. More often than not, probably we don't take everything to God in prayer, right? What a privilege—that's him. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. We probably don't patiently and as eagerly as we ought to bring our troubles to the Lord and attend upon His gracious hand to rescue and deliver us. But rather, like Philip, 
As soon as we see normal means, normal answers exhausted, we despair. Lord, how can this be good? Or Lord, how are you going to make this work out for my good? We think through it and we just find ourselves thinking, I've thought about this thing every which way, up and down, left and right, and it just doesn't, I just don't see it. How the Lord is going to work this one out. You know, that's probably the way the saints mentioned in Hebrews 11 oftentimes felt. We were talking about Hebrews 11 yesterday morning, or we made a comment about it in our men's breakfast. Hebrews 11, sometimes called the Hall of Faith, and it is that. They're commended for their faith in the promise. But sometimes what we miss is why they're commended for their faith, because their faith was so contrary to everything they saw around them. Every one of those saints was given a promise from God. And yet, everything they saw with their eyes, you think of Abraham with Isaac, Moses and his suffering, and the many, many, many others, all of them were given a promise from God, and yet everything they saw seemed contrary to the promise. And yet, they are commended for looking to the Lord by faith. That's what Philip ought to have done here. That's what we ought to do, right? When the answer is unapparent to us, we don't question the Lord. We look to the Lord. And we wait upon the Lord and we trust the Lord. We ought to remember that there is no place the providence of Christ will lead me that the hand of Christ will not be there also to provide for me. But notice, moving on in the lesson here, Philip's example to us, notice how tender Christ is here with Philip. And, and we could add Andrew, probably mostly Philip. He doesn't even rebuke them for their unbelief and their faltering, though he could have. And Jesus will later in this Gospel say to Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long and what? You still don't know me. But he doesn't do that here, even though Philip had seen plenty already in the miracles of Christ. Rather, what does Jesus say to him? He says, Philip and the other disciples, have the people sit down. Have the people sit down and I will show you again, Philip, the reason you ought to trust me. Have you ever experienced that? I've experienced that. Where the Lord tests you and you're not found in your most spiritual state, and you don't even begin to think in the categories of this is the Lord's testing me, and I ought to receive it as such, you just respond carnally, you're, you fret, you're anxious, you all those things. And the Lord responds to you not by rebuking you, but by giving you yet another evidence of why you ought to have trusted Him. And mercy, as it were, melts your heart and you, and you realize, you look back on hours before or days before and you just realize, I t- absolutely failed the Lord. I didn't trust Him. And yet His response to me was not one of harsh rebuke, but one of mercy, of kindness to show me again, stubborn-hearted disciple that I am, that He is faithful. And I should have known that back then. I did know that, but I chose not to believe it. 
And now here I am again. The Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord does that with His people more often than we're even aware. Where we doubt His goodness, we doubt His ability to deliver us, and He shows us yet again that our God is able to supply all of our needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. But Christian, what what should we take away from all this? We should take this away at least. The tests of the Lord are intended for the purification and the strengthening of your faith in Christ and your reliance upon Him. We see this tangibly in the twelve. Maybe more accurately, the eleven. Judas is a a traitor. As we see their faith going from immaturity to greater maturity. These things are given us, Christian, in the Word to cause us to read our lives through the lens of these things so that we would learn more and more not to lean on my own understanding, but to lean upon Him who raises the dead. Literally. That will be the ultimate vindication of all God's people. And if He can raise the dead, I promise you there is nothing beyond His power to handle in the way that He sees fit in your life. We're given these things to be taught that when our arm is shortened, so to speak, to use biblical terminology, the Lord's is not. Just because we're unable to think of something does not mean that the Lord does not know what He intends to do. Daniel. Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace are an incredible Old Testament example of faith in God testing His people and God's ability to see them through it. You remember Nebuchadnezzar in fury delivers them to go into the furnace. And their response to Nebuchadnezzar, probably one of the most powerful men on the planet at that time, he's got a furnace that's heated seven times its normal temperature. They say to Nebuchadnezzar this, Our God will deliver us from the furnace and your hand, O king. And then they say, but if not, we will not worship your gods or bow down to them. That should be our response to God's test, to Christ's test for us. That our God is able to deliver us in incredible ways. Ways that are beyond even what we ask or think. But, if not, and we realize that sometimes the answer is not, but if not, I will still not bow the knee to unbelief, but I will believe in the purposes of my God for me. And I will not doubt the purposes of my Lord's wisdom. He will do what's best for the good of my soul and for His glory. That brings us to the second thing. Secondly and finally, we are instructed in this text. This is actually the point of the miracle. I think I would be amiss if I didn't bring this out. We are instructed in this text that Jesus Himself is the bread of life. Okay? Jesus Himself is the bread of life. 
Whereas I mentioned John is selective in his account of this miracle, he's actually more, he expounds much more on the significance and the meaning of this miracle. The other gospels record this miracle, that it happened. They tell us about the multiplication of the bread and the fish, but it's, per, per, excuse me, peculiarly, there we go, peculiarly, John, who expounds for us, the significance of this miracle. Namely, that Jesus does care about the body. Okay, that's, that's true enough. But more than that, Jesus performed this miracle to show us that we should labor not for earthly bread which perishes, but for the bread from heaven that gives us eternal life. Glance down at verse 27. He tells these crowds after they find Him again on the other side of the lake and they're seeking Him because they've had their fill of the loaves and they're hungry again. He says to them in verse 27, do not seek or labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you. Brothers and sisters, and unbelieving, my unbelieving friend, listen to me. We shortchange this miracle if all we get from it is on an earthly level, here is a man who can produce physical bread out of thin air. You don't have to be born again to want earthly things from Jesus. You don't have to be born again to see Jesus as simply a convenient means to an end. Right? You remember the woman at the well before her eyes were open, she responded to Christ exactly that way. When He promised her living water, talking about the Spirit of God that would bring Christ to her, how did she respond? Lord, give me this water always so that what? I will not have to come back here and draw water. That's missing the point. These crowds, as we're going to see, they saw and viewed Jesus merely as someone who is useful to achieve their desires. We want these things. We have these desires. We're hungry. We want to be filled again. This man can give them to us on demand. Therefore, let's make him king as we're going to see next week in verse 15, when they literally try to take Him by force to make Him king. Why do you think that is? This man's useful. He gives us the things on earth that we want and we need. My friend, you don't have to be born again. It's no evidence that you have the Spirit of God within you when you simply come to Jesus for the things that He can give you here on earth. That's actually called idolatry. Or spiritual adultery, James calls it in James chapter 4. When we use God as a means not to have God, but simply treating Him like a genie who gives us the other things that we want. 
In fact, I would say this, if you do come to Jesus that way, it's evidence that you have not been born again. Because guess what happens the moment He stops giving these people what they want and instead tells them what they actually need? All of them walk away from Him. Saying His words are too difficult for us. Their faith here is in the wrong thing. Jesus, listen to me, Jesus did not come to be received as a useful means by which we get the earthly things we desire. He came to be the object of our desire. And this miracle illustrates the fact that Jesus Himself is the never-ending, all-satisfying sustenance we were made for. Christian, think about the imagery of this miracle. We could, there's more details we could open up. Think about just the big picture of what's happening here. Jesus multiplies these few bread and fish to as many as had need. Not a single one went without food that day. Not only that, the crowd didn't just nibble, they feasted until they were full. And after all that, there were 12 baskets left over. What's that a picture of? Brothers and sisters, that is Christ to the Christian. That's a picture of what Christ is to the believer. Not just for these disciples, but for us in all ages. He is for all people, great and small, the unmovable rock when all around me gives way. He is the one who is sustenance for the Christian soul. He's the bread of life. What's bread to us? Bread is a summary of what keeps us going, right? It's our sustenance. Christ is the sustenance of His people, and He's a never-ending, never-depleting source of sustenance. And He's proven that to every single one of you if you're in Christ. He's proven that to you before. Some of you, He has proven that to you in even deeper, more difficult ways than others. We sing that hymn. I'm not going to be able to think of the title of it. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Yes, there we go. How I've proved Him over and over. The amount to which Jesus' faithfulness and being your sustenance has been proved in your life depends in large degree upon the types of things that Jesus has given you in your life. When it says here, He did this to test Philip, this was not the biggest test in the world. But sometimes the Lord Jesus in infinite wisdom gives His people particularly deep 
cutting trials and tests so that when we sing how I've proved Him o'er and o'er, it doesn't just mean I've proved Him in small, menial things, but He's gone down with me into the depths and His grace has proved sufficient. There are times every now and then in my, in my just private life and reflection as a pastor, there are times when I purposefully get alone with God and I purposefully reflect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get emotional here probably. I reflect and I, I don't do it, I can't do it for too long because of how overwhelming it can be. But I purposefully reflect on the hard parts of pastoral ministry. And I don't mean hard parts, things in my life. I mean things in your life. And I bring to mind the tragedies. And the heartaches. This week was one of those weeks. It was time again. Sometimes something brings it up and it's just time to think back. Remembering some of the things that I've walked through with some of you. Probably, I don't know the rest of your life, but probably some of the deepest waters that you will ever walk through. And providences that were so heavy, it feels literally like your soul is being crushed. And like your stomach is just dropping continuously. There's a reason for that kind of reflection. And the reason is this. If there were ever a limit or a breaking point to Christ's sustaining grace for His people no doubt those things would have been them. If there were one link in the chains of Christ's love that have a hold on His people, those are the providences that would have seemed to push it to the breaking point. And yet, they didn't. And they don't. He brought you through. I could name some of you right now. You're still today being carried along by the gracious heart and hand of Christ. You didn't just throw in the towel in unbelief. And He showed you that even what seemed to you to be a weight too heavy for anyone to bear it was not too heavy for Him to bear. And that's the point of the Christian life, isn't it? That's the point of tests, is to wean us from our weak selves and to depend on a strong Christ. Jesus says later in the Gospel that He has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. That's not talking about the kind of garbage that modern day prosperity people want to make it mean. Okay? 
He has come that we may have life and that we may have it abundantly doesn't mean everything is peachy, everything is peaceful, no crying, no weeping, no hardship. It means I have Christ within me who is my life. Inexhaustible, replenishing life and grace to all who believe. The weakest believer to the strongest believer, they have the same Christ. In temptation, in discouragement, in distress, there remains one constant that will never change for the Christian. Christ is my fountain of life. He is the bread that will continue to feed my soul all along this veil of tears until I enter the gates of the celestial city. Though my heart gets cold, though my mind gets worried, though my feet grow weary, I have one in heaven whose streams never run dry and whose commitment to me will never, ever fail. I think of Pilgrim in, in Christ, uh, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. One of my favorite scenes, I need to read that book again, actually, to refresh my memory. I'll just summarize. The, the analogy, you'll get it. Satan is pouring water on the flame of the believer's faith. And he's trying to put the fire out. He's trying to kill the faith of the believer, Right? That, that's the experience of the Christian, right? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Job is an example. Whether it be physical sufferings, physical distress, spiritual affliction, that's the devil's goal. Pour, pour water on the fire of their faith to extinguish it. And then Bunyan brings us behind the wall. right? That fire, you could only see it from one side of the wall. And there's the devil pouring water on it. And he brings you behind the wall and what's going on on the other side? There's one pouring oil into the fire. What happens when you pour water on an oil, on a grease fire? It gets bigger, right? Bunyan was brilliant with those analogies. That's Christ for us. That while the devil seeks to snuff out our faith, Christ is all the while pouring out more of His help. More of His grace. It's amazing when you think about it. I think of, I'll give you the example of me as a parent. And other, you parents, I'm sure, unless again, all these super Christians that I haven't met yet, I'm assuming you can relate to me. Mere humans like us have a limit of how much we can give. Now, to be fair, that limit, we often set it way lower than it actually should be set at because of our sin. But nonetheless, we have a limit. We, we get overwhelmed when it just feels like I am being stretched thin. Things are being demanded of me every which direction. This child needs this. This child needs this. This child needs this. And I just I can't get a break. Right? Our, our kids really, they test that, don't they? Moms, you probably more than dads know that. Kids seem to have very little awareness of all the other things that mom might be stressed about and having to give their atten her attention to. And we wish that our children would just realize for a moment that I don't have the infinite capacity right now to deal with yet another need. 
But here's the thing. That never happens with Christ. It never has happened and it never will happen. It doesn't matter how much others are drawing upon Christ. The whole church all at once could go through their worst trial of their life and be beseeching the Lord for all the grace they can muster. That can be going on all around me. And here's the thing. Unlike me as a parent, I will never go to the throne of grace and find His hand empty to me. I will never go to the throne of grace and find a sign that says, too busy working with others. Or just, I'm tired today. Jesus never needs to be replenished. That's why he says, don't labor after the food which perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life. He does not grow weary. He does not faint. He is the bread of heaven that endures to eternal life. Christian. Very simple application. Draw upon Christ. Feed spiritually upon Christ. That's what he delights in. Have you, Christian, forgotten his power towards you? His ability to perfect that which concerns you. How prone we are to forget. Like Philip. I know that. I know that because I'm just like you. Past mercies in which the Lord was so gracious and He delivered me from my every foe and my every enemy. Somehow, it's amazing how forgetful we are. Those things suddenly become like distant memories. And this new thing that happens, all of a sudden, everything's brought into question again. As though he doesn't have a trustworthy track record. Christian, draw upon Christ. Those deliverances in the past should be Ebenezer's that you look to that remind you Christ is the same today as He was yesterday. He He won't change. He hasn't changed. He will not fail to sustain His people in their wilderness. Finally, as we close, I want to speak to you, unbeliever, just briefly here. If you're here and you're not a a Christian, I, I hope you are jealous to become a Christian. The Christian life is one of suffering, but it is a life of blessedness. Paul says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Come to Christ that you may have life. I don't pretend to offer you this morning a gospel that promises you an easy life of prosperity and everything else like that in this world. Quite the opposite, actually, is often the Christian's lot. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, and yet the Lord delivers him from them all. My friend, in Christ... God gives you not what you want in this world like these people wanted bread. He gives us what we need. He gives to us the gift of His blessed Son who gives to us the blessed gift of eternal life. A life which begins the moment you believe. 
It begins in your heart. A life which brings to your heart a knowledge of peace with God and sins forgiven. A life that brings to your heart a confidence that God, my Creator, will not bring me into judgment for my sins, but rather He has committed Himself to my eternal good and well-being at the cost of the death of His own Son. That's how the Father has demonstrated His love to this sinful world. He has sent His only begotten Son to die the sinner's death, to rise victorious from the grave, so that we might receive from Christ a life with God that has no end. That we might have hope as we walk through this veil of tears. That we might walk in a way that no matter what befalls us or afflicts us on life's road, we know I have an advocate with the Father who presents my soul perfectly before God. I have a faithful and merciful high priest who walks with me all the way to glory and gives me grace that is never ending. My friend, do not labor for the food which perishes, but labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. Receive Christ by faith. Receive the bread from heaven which does not perish and does not disappoint. He who eats from Christ will not go hungry but will find his soul satisfied both now and in the age to come. Trust him for his grace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make Christ more precious to us. Father, we are such a fickle people like your disciples on earth not a single one of us dares to count ourselves blameless when it comes to this kind of test and these failing and these failings. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to prove Christ over and over again, that we would prove him by trusting him. Father, we thank you for how gracious Christ is to us even in our failures, but it is our desire that we would fail him less and less that we would trust Him more and more. Draw near to us, we pray. Be merciful to the sinner who doesn't know Christ, who is without hope and without God in the world. Father, make them alive. We are helpless. We cannot do anything to definitively cause them to be brought from life to death. We can simply proclaim the glories of Your Word it is Your Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so, Father, we pray, send Your Spirit. Deliver them from the clutches of death that they do not even realize they are held by. Give them the hope of eternal life. Cause them to know Christ as that bread which endures to eternal life. Draw near to us now at the supper, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name.